0: You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLewin.com. Well, good morning once again, and we're back to Judges, but we're in chapter 10, so you can find Judges chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. On your way there is Weston here today, Weston Voigt. He is somewhere. Where is... There's Weston. Here's Weston's picture from last week while we're heading to the Judges chapter 10. Weston drew this in two parts. There's two scenes going on here, and I think you can even see from there this tower, and there's a lot going on. They had dynamite, apparently. There was a... uh, There's gasoline being poured on the tower. There's torches. This is Abimelech going to burn down that tower. Remember last week we looked at just this bonfire of destruction in the wake of of sin and people who had closed their ears to the work of the, of the Lord to listen to the Lord and just destruction in the path. So here was the one tower, and then the next one. There's the other tower. Remember the lady with the millstone? Just dropped it, and there goes Abimelech's fall, thunk. And he says, finish me. And the, the soldier, probably in the NIV, says, Whatever, what do you say? Whatever you say, boss. Yeah, so, all right. Thanks, Weston, for showing us that. So, all right, well, hopefully you're in Judges chapter 10. We're just going to read through verse 16. We're going to save 17 as we come into chapter 11. The next time we come back to this book, uh, come back this next week. Milt will be preaching in my place, and I appreciate that. uh, So come back and listen um, to him as well. But here this week, we're going to look at chapter 10, and I'll read verses 1 through 16. Let's listen to God's word this morning. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havoth jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in common. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight, against, fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites? from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Let me pray once again. Lord, again, we come to your word, your holy word, the gift to us. And we take time, Lord, now in our... In the, midst of our busy, maybe weekend, and our busy lives where one week rolls into the next. Thank you for this time to just stop and listen, and I pray that's what the preacher would do and those hearing would do, that we would listen and hear from you today. Here we are in chapter 10 of a book of Judges, where we just see this failure over and over again of your people. Lord, just give us fresh ears to hear of you. May our, may our eyes be lifted to you. Once again, as we hear from Your Word, it is a gracious and good Word. Convict our hearts and lead us as we study it. We would pray for Your help. In Your name, Amen. Well, I wonder if you can relate to the people of Israel once again here. They have seen the mighty hand of God. It's even mentioned in here. They've seen God's work, what God had done, and, and yet just sin... Seems to dominate their lives, and as we come to these cycles again, we just see this over. and over. Here's Israel once again. You just say, like chapter ten. You could say, "I thought we were in chapter nine, eight, 7, You know, all these. We just see this failure of Israel. But I want to ask you as well in your life, if you could count, could you count them? How many sermons have you listened to in the scope of your life? I don't, I don't know. I'm not. Looking, you don't have to answer out loud. I don't know how many sermons you've listened to or I've listened to. Or how many times you've, you've read the Scriptures, you've studied God's Word, maybe days, maybe every day you're able to bite off a chunk of God's Word and read it. And, and, and by the way, if you're reading through, we're in the book of Judges on the two-year plan, so this is a great time to catch up on the whole book. But maybe you do that many days a week. What we've sung today, you've been singing songs to the Lord, maybe some of you, all your life. You grew up like as old as Esther, from the, you grew up from the womb just here. You were in church every Sunday hearing these songs and worshiping and saying, I'll follow and I'll surrender. And yet, we find ourselves still facing sin in our lives. With, with all of that background to each of our lives, you are not alone. That's the book of Judges demonstrates the waywardness of every heart. And we've been looking at that. And they, it shows the waywardness of Israel. And then if we look and we say, yeah, that, that's me too. All have sinned. I'm, I'm right along these guys. I see this work of the, of the Lord and I'm back where I don't want to be. I want to draw your attention just today's passage. There are some truths that we need to hear in the midst of our sin. So a couple different streams. We'll look at that. But some truths we need to hear in the midst of sin and its effect on our lives let me first draw our attention just to these two judges that are not the household names right we know we know Samson we know Gideon and and this sort of thing but we don't really know Tola and Jair and I won't I won't read all of one through five again that's their background but what we have here information wise is just a hair better than what you might read on a gravestone at a cemetery there's just there's not A lot here and we looked at Shamgar remember that we kind of saw the same thing we've got some of their lineage Tola's from Issachar and we've got Jair uh, comes from Manasseh I'll just fill that in for you if you look back in numbers Jair is kind of traces back to Manasseh these these tribes of um, Jacob tribes of Israel they lived Tola hill country of Ephraim or Gilead Gilead's a cross that if you Divide up Israel, and you've got the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan coming down to the Dead Sea. You've got Gilead, kind of on the on the eastern side of that Jordan. They served one twenty-three years, Tola, I think, and then uh, Jair twenty-two years, and they're buried, Shamir and Kamon, wherever those are, right? So, so the question again is: We come to just this these verses, and we go, why is this here? Why include just? I don't know they just seem like inconsequential facts of these two judges again we know of Gideon we know of Samson why not a, a whole long section on Tola we just we just don't know in one sense they give some historical fact they give a line a background to the broad account and and if we let our imagination run 23 plus 22 45 right? 45 years worth of history that we really know little of. So we've got some of the history. We just read all, you know, time and Gideon, and now there's 45 years we don't know a lot of, but we, we know this, and it's just not in these verses, but we've seen it before in Judges. Chapter 2, it says this, and we can fill this in for what we don't know here of Tola and Jair. Here's what it said in Judges 2, 18 through 19. Here's what happens with every judge. It says, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, Tola and Jair and others, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. God gave judges because He pitied Israel who was oppressed every time. Even though each generation as we are seeing and as we read today, each generation is more corruptible than the last. It keeps going downhill. And yet God sends a judge to save. So what we have with Tolanjir, it's not the, the broad chapters 6 through 9 of Gideon that we've been in for really most of the summer. We've just got a couple verses. But just as we saw with Shamgar, who only got one verse, one line or two or five verses here does not mean God is not at work. He is at work. Indeed, they're, they're small epitaphs, if you will, of these two judges. But behind them, there is a big salvation of God. So, God is saving. Even here in just these little five verses, and we can kind of imagine what was life like, I don't know, for Tola and Jair, but God's salvation is big. And yet, once again, they bridge this gap between Gideon, Abimelech, and Abimelech's even mentioned here, and then coming into what we're going to look at with Jephthah coming up down the road. But here, they die. And that's clear. Both of them have died. I mean, it goes to point that out. And after their death, we find this corruption taking place. Look at verse 6 now as we look at the bulk of this part. Verse 6, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, And they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. Remember that? Remember when judges, when the judge died? They were more corrupt than their fathers? Israel now, they just don't serve one set of foreign gods. They serve seven. And it's almost like seven categories, but who knows how many actual gods that are here that they are serving. It's just the list has just grown of gods that they are serving. It's kind of like Culver's. You know, they've got the flavor of the day, whatever it is. This is just what's your God for today? I'll, I'll take this one and I'll take the Sidonian God today and I'll take Baal and I all the, they just got a a, a plateful of gods before them. One writer speaks of what what was one what was the allurement of these other religions? Maybe this is helpful for you. I mean, we we, we might look and just go, what? Why are you why are you going this way? He says this: the subtle attractions of these heathen religions. See if this ever happens to you with their material and sensuous satisfactions proved too much for Israel materially sensually it was a great temptation and a snare to Israel they faced these pleasures and it was hard to pull away from what feels so good and so we see Israel at the end of verse 6 forsaking the lord And I I know this is nothing new to us in this book, and it can be kind of repetitive, but just hear that again. Let it sink in just fresh this morning. Think of what happened. They left the God who loved them. Just sink it in again. They left the God who had loved them and who had delivered them, and, and they were His, and He brought them to be His own. That's who they were... Forsaking, another word is leaving. They were leaving him. So look at verses 7 through 9. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was, take note, they were severely distressed. A couple of highlights, just a few from these verses. One is who God sells them to. He sells them to the Philistines and the Ammonites. Now, we're going to deal with the Ammonites as we get into Jephthah. That's the next judge kind of that gets a little more written about him than Tola and Jair, but we're gonna, that's the Ammonites, and we're going to see that. But the Philistines are also mentioned here, and I think this is interesting. Samson is coming on the heels of Jephthah, coming behind That's another judge, and he's going to deal with the Philistines. So in some way, again, God's Word, it's not a haphazard book just kind of thrown together. It's good literature. The writer which is ultimately God, and the writer, maybe it was Samuel, I don't know. The writer is here kind of introducing Ammonites and Philistines, and the text will go towards Jephthah, Jephthah and, then, and then Samson. Now, some will say Jepson, Jepson, <laughs> Jephthah and Samson were, were at the same time. So maybe Jephthah was up kind of in the northeast part of Israel, and maybe Samson, Samson more the south west part, and they were judges at the same time. I don't, that could be everybody's trying to work out the chronology, the years and this judge and how does that work and it gets into First Kings and you can have a lot of fun with figuring all that out. So maybe, maybe they served at the same time. I lean towards, I, I think more is over all Israel, but I just I lean that way. But um, that's what could be going on. Nonetheless, the stage is set for where the, where the narrative, where the book is going to go from here. But the other highlight, just real brief, is just to mention, focus again, Israel's distress. They were not just distressed, they were severely distressed. Eighteen years of oppression, they're crushed. And we get to those last words of verse 9. And it would seem there was not only the crushing opposition, it seems like the time factor is brought out. Now, 18 years is I think they've also been oppressed. Maybe it was the Midian Midianites as well, something in there for 18 years. It's a long time. It's not just a short, a week-long oppression. It's a long oppression. And they were crushed and distressed. And so, once again, in the midst of God's, let's call it His gracious distress because of where it leads them. But in the midst of this, Israel cries out, and we find it in verse 10. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. This is really the first time that I can find in this book where we see Israel with this more extensive confession. They before they've cried and they sought the help of the Lord, here it's kind of what did that cry involve? We've sinned, we've forsaken, we've served the Baals. And so Israel admits their sin. And maybe this was a deeper confession. Maybe it's what they've done before. We just get to read about it. But they admit, we have sinned against you. That word for sinned here is that word, if you've ever heard of sin, as missing the mark. That's that's what this word, at least part of it, can mean, that idea of missing uh, the mark. God said, these are my ways. These are my commands. Do this. Don't do this, do this. If you think of a target with a bullseye, it's like this is God's way. This is the way to go, and they have missed it. Now I could not remember where I heard this. I don't know if I preached this years ago or a friend in seminary did, but there was an idea of even that this missing the mark is not that you're just kind of your aim's just a little off. You're really, you're really close. You just missed it by, you know, a hair. It's like missing the mark was like. Shooting in the entire, you know, the wrong direction. That's how missing the mark sin is. Which makes sense. If you forsake the Lord, everything else is against the Lord. It's not just forsaking and leaving and sinning against the Lord, and it's just a minor infraction. He's the Creator, and you've turned your back and you've left, and you're going in the wrong way. That's idea. It's more than a near miss. And so they confess to the Lord that they've forsaken. God, We have forsaken our God. Isn't that really just the heart of sin? We've forsaken. We've we've left Him. We've disregarded His ways and His words. And then they continue, and we've served the Baals. Here's the acknowledgement. They left God. They forsook Him. They left this One who is infinitely, He's holy, He's righteous. He's been with them. He's delivered them. He's been gracious to them. And they leave and they turn for these false, counterfeit gods that in the end offer no help to them. They are oppressed and distressed, and none of those gods got them through anything. So at the heart of all sin, there's the bigger issue. We've forsaken the Lord, left the Lord. I think in order for us to see sin for what it is, and even... Many of you, that we want to change, we want to reform. I don't want to sin in that way. I think for us is to, we need this healthy, realistic view of what sin is. And that it is, we have forsaken our Lord. We have left Him. Little sin, is not, it's not cute. It's not harmless. It's not little. There is no little white lie. There's no little bit of this sin. It's just okay. It's against God. It's forsaking the God of all creation. That's what Israel had done, and they're confessing. And so now we get into this confession and response here of the Lord. Look at God's response in verses 11 through 12. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Mayonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. God does not respond without kind of letting that bite of sin just permeate a little bit longer. doesn't just say, doesn't start off, I forgive you. He says, did I not? Do you remember? They need to know who they uh, abandoned. What's interesting here is commentators will point out Um, the numbers that are here. And I want to take you just a really short little thing. Just take a second. Look at verses 11 through 12. I want you on your own. I think this will work in any version you have. Count how many people God saved Israel from. See if you can count them right now. You can help your kids. Count them up. You don't have to count out loud. You can. How many people in verses 11 through 12 did God save them from? You count seven, seven. Okay, hold that number. Head up to verse six. In verse six, here's your next exercise. How many gods did they serve? Just count them out, starting with the bales. Count, count how many are there. Verse six, they serve the one, two, three, four, five, six. You get seven again. God's Word is ama- It's seven and seven. What I'm not adding and doing weird things with numbers, but seven. It's that number of completeness. You think of the seven days of creation. There's a completeness to it. I think within this account, there is a contrast here going on. There's seven ways Israel has forsaken God, seven other... Deities, We know that maybe there's more gods, but seven categories, or I don't know how better to say it, these gods. And yet the, the completeness of God's deliverance and this, this contrast. You serve these, you thought that was complete with those gods. It wasn't. I completely, almost in a sense, God can say, He can say, not almost, I completely saved you. I've delivered you. Their gods had failed. Yahweh was a complete deliverer. So in verses 13 and 14, the hammer comes down. A gracious hammer, but a hammer nonetheless. Look at verses 13 and 14. God continues to, to speak to them. Yet you have, you know, I, I delivered you, I saved you. Verse 13, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress this has got to be the lowest of loads when lows when you hear this i mean what would it be like to hear this and let it have its full power to have god to hear him say i won't save you any longer go ahead go cry to your gods it's not here it ought to, it's devastating and it should have been to them maybe our own minds, we want to say, no, no wait a minute. I, I thought God, He's got to open arms to those that confess, right? I, I mean, I know I sin, but He's got mercy. Yes, and listen to Dale Davis. Here's what he says. The, he, calls, he calls it bomb shelter religion. I think, I, I think that's like, you know, the bombs are going off and we'll take religion whenever the bombs go off. But when the enemy stops bombing... We'll just go back to our own thing. If that's, I think that's kind of what he's talking about. Here's what he says. The theology of bomb shelter religion teaches that, of course, God will help you in your need. Then he goes on to say, He's like a great, warm, vending machine in the sky into which you need only drop a token or two of repentance before He spits out the relief you currently crave. We ever treat God just like a warm vending machine? When life is bad, then we come, and then we forget once again. God is drilling down to the roots of their sin here. He's bringing a dose of reality. The reality is there is no salvation in anyone else. Israel and us, we cannot live life how we want. We cannot treat sin lightly, kind of with a mind like, well, God will be merciful to me. I can just sin a little because I know He's a merciful God. Right? He's a loving God. Right? It, there, yes. <laughs> he is. But one cannot persist in sin, this condition of perpetual forsaking and abandoning a God and also hold to a hope of salvation. Now, I'm not... Not speaking about earning a salvation or a works to get saved, I'm just saying, how do you give hope to someone that is constantly, in, I mean, perpetual, without any confession, without any? Just, He'll be merciful to me. It's presuming upon His kindness while also pursuing a life of sin. And so, I think what's before us here with Israel, it's a warning to them. It's a, it's a big warning. I'm not going to save you. And we should hear, and I think there's other passages of Scripture that kind of should make, you know, we kind of go, wait. I think that's the intent of the Scriptures, to make us go, wait, there's a warning here. It's not just, you know, live however and grab some mercy when you need it. There's some warning. Now hang there, hold there. Look at Israel's response in verses 15, and then I just want to read half of 16 here. So what do they do with this? The people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. Now, again, they're confessing their sin. Confess, we missed the mark. They appeal to God's goodness and plan. You do what's good. Just please deliver us. And then they do something here, and they they turn aside. The ESV puts it, they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. They not only confess, there is action going on here. They do this, they confess, yes, we're sinned, and they put away. There's an action to their repentance. But the most striking part of this whole section, and I want you to see it, is in the last part of verse 16. Look at what it says. And he, God, he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now, there's two ways to look at this last phrase. ESV Study Bible points out two different opinions. So, opinion number one what, is it, what does it mean that God's impatient over the misery of Israel as we come to that? They say, number one, this is God's display of great mercy in light of Israel's misery. Or, number two, God is in fact impatient with Israel and her rebellion. But look at the object. Look at what God is impatient with to help us. He became impatient what? Over their misery. That's really key. What is he impatient over? You could ask the question here, what makes God more impatient than the rebellion of Israel? What can make God more impatient than their rebellion? We think, nothing. They're rebellious, a rebellious lot constantly going against Him. He's impatient over them. We kind of just want to say, of course He is. They deserve this. And yet, what makes Him more impatient? Beautifully, it's their hardship and their misery. And it trumps their rebellion. Now, I'm trying to pull this out of thin air. I want to read two quotes for you here. I hope you look at just how many words are here. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine words of Scripture to just go, man, we serve an amazingly compassionate God. Here's what Barry Webb writes of this reaction of God to this. He became impatient over the misery. It was not there, he's saying it's not Israel's, It was not their renunciation of other gods which moved him. They had done that many times before only to return to their old ways. It was not their repentance that he found impossible to ignore, but what? But their misery. Only the Lord's pity stood between the Israelites and utter ruin. They deserved to be abandoned. But... Such is His mercy. He could not give them up. It's beautiful of what God looks at. Even beautiful, it's, is repentance crucial? It is. We need to repent. But it's not, that's not the thing. It's that God grew impatient over their misery. His compassion. Here's what one more says. In order to bend the sinner at all, the love of God must withdraw its helping hand and make men feel the consequences of their sin and rebelliousness, that they may forsake their evil ways and turn to the Lord their God. When this has been attained, the same divine love manifests itself as pitying and helping grace. Punishments and benefits flow from the love of God and have for their object the happiness and well-being of God. Here's one little sentence, verse 16. It's powerful in light of the reality that Israel is facing. Their God had just said, I will save you no more. They ought to be stunned. They ought to see their sinfulness, the wretchedness of their condition. And yet in the midst of judgment, right judgment, gracious judgment to bring them back, there is also mercy, God's pity, on God's people. Two closing thoughts. There seem to be two streams flowing out of what we just studied. One, Number one, stream number one, take sin seriously. I almost feel like a broken record. I think just, we hear that over and over through this book. Take it seriously. Let us not come away from this passage without a resolve to see our sin for what it is. It's really against the Lord. Against you, David says, and you only have I sinned. May we have a fresh eye to see that. To be serious with sin. To contemplate. What does it mean to miss the mark? To forsake the Lord. And that we not presume upon the Lord and say, I'll just go ahead and sin and I'll ask forgiveness later. Be warned. Fear the Lord in that. That's one stream some of us, we need to hear that. You need to hear this stream of sin and to run from forsaking the Lord to run back to the Lord. And some of you are maybe in the stream and you're inundated by sin and beat down. How will I ever get? And you need to hear about God's compassion that we see here. For those who see the wretchedness of their sin. God has revealed your sin once again. Cling to His mercy. I want to read one more quote from Dale Davis in this. He says, Our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance. And I don't think he's downplaying repentance at all. But he says, Our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. That's where our hope... He says, it's, it's very difficult for us to imagine how much Israel's misery moves Yahweh. It is as if he cannot stand to see his people, even his sinful people, crushed. In all their affliction, he is afflicted. That is why we have this seeming tension between judgment and grace in Scripture. A tension not merely in the texts of Scripture, but in the character of Yahweh himself. For he is the God whose holiness Demands he judge his people, yet whose heart moves him to spare his people. And he says, many Christians, especially those who have a lively sense of God's severity, but little of his kindness, should meditate on this text. You must see Yahweh's heart. Scripturally, it goes like this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us, sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I titled this sermon, How Will God React When His People Forsake Him? He acts in steadfast love, amazing love, love that reveals the warning and the danger. It reveals that and sees, points out our sin, and a love that demonstrates compassion. And there is grace for those in distress. Let's pray together. It is purely grace, Lord Jesus that you would act and even to have these, these seven or eight words here in the Scripture of your grace upon a wayward people whom there is no reason you should save them other than your grace and by your divine and sovereign will. Lord, help us as a people to not presume upon you in our sin, Guide us, Lord, today. Would You point out, maybe through other people, through our own hearts, that You would convict us of the the stain of sin how sin forsakes You and departs from You. Give us fresh eyes to see the severity of our sin. And then, Lord, we pray that in that, when we see that, that we would put our hope in Your love, the love demonstrated For enemies like us on the cross by Jesus Christ dying in our place, may we look to Jesus and be forever grateful and sing your praises and glorify you in our lives presently and in eternity. I pray this, I pray for the people here, Lord, lead us to to love you because you first loved us. Thank you for your amazing love, Lord. In Jesus' name. listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.